And speaking about perjury, there's a writing that his mother said anybody who knew his writing ought to be able to identify, and yet that man you put up there to prove Frank's writing was so afraid that he would do this man some injury that he wouldn't identify the writing that his mother says that anybody that knows it at all could recognize. I grant you that he didn't betray nervousness, probably, in the bosom of his family. I grant you that he could fix up a financial sheet that he had been fixing up 52 times a year for five or six years and not betray nervousness. I grant you that he could unlock the safe, a thing that he did every day for 365 days in the year without betraying nervousness. But when he went to run the elevator, when he went to nail up the door, when he talked to the police, when he rode to the station, then he showed nervousness. And he could sit in a hall and read and joke about the baseball umpire, but his frivolity that annoyed the people Saturday night that they had the card game was the same kind of frivolity that Beatty betrayed when he stood at the automobile that contained the blood of his wife that he had shot. And certainly it is before this jury that he went in laughing and joking and trying to read a story that resulted only in annoyance to the people that were in that card game. But whether or not he made out that financial sheet, I'll tell you something that he did do Saturday afternoon when he was waiting up there for old Jim to come back to burn that body. I'll tell you something that he did do. And don't forget the envelope, and don't forget the way that that paper was folded either. Don't forget it. Listen to this. I trust this finds you and dear Tante, that's the German for aunt, well after arriving safe in New York. I hope you found all the dear ones well in Brooklyn. Didn't have any wealthy people in Brooklyn, eh? This uncle of his was mighty near Brooklyn. The very time old Jim says he looked up and said, I have wealthy people in Brooklyn. And I would really like to know, I would like to see how much that brother-in-law that runs that cigar business has invested in that store, and how much he has got. The very letter that you wrote on Saturday the 26th shows that you anticipated that this old gentleman, whom everybody says has got money, was then, you supposed, in Brooklyn. Because here you say that, I hope you have found all the dear ones well. But I'm coming back to what Frank said to old Jim, and I await a letter from you telling me how you found things there in Brooklyn. Lucille and I are well. Now, here is a sentence that is pregnant with significance, which bears the earmarks of the guilty conscience, tremulous as he wrote it. No, he could shut his eyes and write and make up a financial sheet. He's capable and smart, wonderfully endowed intellectually. But here's a sentence that, if I know human nature and know the conduct of the guilty conscience, and whatever you may say about whether or not he prepared the financial sheet on Saturday morning, here's a document, I'll concede, was written when he knew that the body of little Mary Fagan, who died for virtue's sake, lay in the dark recesses of that basement. It is too short a time, 
he says, since you left for anything startling to have developed down here. Too short, too short, startling, but too short a time. And that itself shows that the dastardly deed was done in an incredibly short time. And do you tell me, honest men, fair men, courageous men, true Georgians, seeking to do your duty, that that phrase, penned by that man to his uncle on Saturday afternoon, didn't come from a conscience that was its own accuser? It is too short a time since you left for anything startling to have developed down here. What do you think of that? And then listen at this. As if that old gentleman, his uncle, cared anything for this proposition, this old millionaire traveling abroad to Germany for his health, this man from Brooklyn, an eminent authority says that unusual, unnecessary, unexpected, and extravagant expressions are always earmarks of fraud. And do you tell me that this old gentleman, expecting to sail for Europe, the man who wanted the price list and financial sheet, cared anything for those old heroes in gray? And isn't this sentence itself significant? Today was Yontif, holiday. Here, and the thin, gray lines of veterans here braved the rather chilly weather to do honor to their fallen comrades. And this from Leo M. Frank, the statistician, to the old man, the millionaire, or nearly so, who cared so little about the thin, gray line of veterans, but who cared all for how much money had been gotten in by the pencil factory. Too short a time for anything startling to have happened down here since you left. But there was something startling, and it happened within the space of 30 minutes. There is nothing new in the factory to report. Ah, there was something new, and there was something startling, and the time was not too short. You can take that letter and read it for yourself. You tell me that letter was written in the morning. Do you believe it? I tell you that that letter shows on its face that something startling had happened, and that there was something new in the factory, and I tell you that that rich uncle, then supposed to be with his kindred in Brooklyn, didn't care a flip of his finger about the thin gray line of veterans. His people lived in Brooklyn. That's one thing dead sure and certain, and old Jim never would have known it, except Leo M. Frank had told him. And they had at least $20,000 in cold cash out on interest. And the brother-in-law, the owner of a store employing two or three people, and we don't know how many more. And if the uncle wasn't in Brooklyn, he was so near there too that even Frank himself thought he was at the very moment he claimed he was there, because he says... You have seen or are with the people in Brooklyn. All right. Let's go a step further. On April 28th, he wired Adolf Montag in care of the Imperial Hotel. Listen now to what he says. 
You may have read in Atlanta papers of factory girl found dead Sunday morning. In factory. In factory. No. In cellar. Cellar where? Cellar of pencil factory. There's where he placed her. There's where he expected her to be found. And the thing welled up in his mind to such an extent that Monday morning, April twenty eighth, before he had ever been arrested, he wires Montag forestalling what he knew would surely and certainly come, unless the Atlanta detectives were corrupted and should suppress it. You have read in Atlanta papers of factory girl found dead Sunday morning in cellar of pencil factory. Police will eventually solve it. He didn't have any doubt about it. Police will eventually solve it. And be it said to their credit, they did. Assure my uncle. He says Monday morning. I am all right in case he asks. Our company has case well in hand. Girl found dead in pencil factory cellar. He says in the telegram. The police will eventually solve it. He says before he was arrested. I am all right in case my uncle asks. And our company has the case well in hand. Well, maybe he did think that when he got that fellow Scott, that he had it well in hand. I'll tell you, there's an honest man. If there was a slush fund in this case. These witnesses here say they don't know anything about it, but if there was a slush fund in this case, Scott could have got it because, at first, he never heard any words that sounded better to him than when Scott said, "We travel arm in arm with the police." That's exactly what Frank wanted them to do at that time. He wanted somebody that would run with Black and Starnes and Rosser, and it sounded good to him. And he said, "All right." He didn't want him to run anywhere else. Because he wanted him to work hand in glove with these men, and he wanted to know what they did and what they said and what they thought. But Haas, and he's nobody's fool. When he saw that they were getting hot on the trail, opened up the conversation with the suggestion that, "Now you let us have what you get first." And if Scott had fallen for that suggestion, then there would have been something else. You know it. You tell me that letter and that telegram are not significant. I tell you that this evidence shows, notwithstanding what Joe Darter Schiff swore, when he saw the necessity to meet this evidence of Miss Fleming, which Mister Arnold tried so hard because he saw the force of it, to turn into another channel, that Frank didn't fix that financial sheet Saturday morning. I say that. With the stenographer gone and Frank behind, and Schiff had never done such a thing before, he had always stuck to him in getting it up before. That what Gant told you is the truth. This man, expert, brilliant. Talk about this expert accountant Joel Hunter. Why he isn't near as smart as this man Frank to begin on, and besides, the idea of his going up there 
and taking up those things and trying to institute a comparison as to how long it would take him, even if he had the capacity of Frank. He hasn't got it. To go up there and do those things. Why, it's worse than ridiculous. And Frank himself wasn't satisfied with all this showing about what he had done. He got up on the stand. He saw the weakness of his case. And he's as smart as either one of his lawyers, too, let me tell you. And I'll bet you he wrote that statement, too. They may have read it, but he wrote it. Frank realized that he must go over and beyond what the evidence was. And through his statement, he sought to lug into this case something that they didn't have any evidence for. Why? Because he knew in his heart that all this talk about the length of time it took to fix that financial sheet was mere buncombe. Then he seeks to put in here, through that statement, and if we hadn't stopped him, he would have done it, a whole raft of other stuff that Schiff, as willing as he was, as anxious as he was, couldn't stultify himself to such an extent as to tell you that Frank did that work Saturday morning. But if he did write that financial sheet Saturday afternoon, a thing I submit he didn't do, I'm willing to admit he wrote that letter. I ask you, as fair men and honest men and disinterested jurors representing the people of this community in seeing that justice is done and that the man who committed that dastardly deed has meted out to him that which he meted out to this poor little girl, if this documentary evidence, these papers, don't have the impress of a guilty man. You know it. All right. But you say there's perjury. Where is it? I'll tell you another case. I have already referred to it. It's when that man, put up there to identify Frank's writing, failed to identify a writing that Frank's own mother swore that anybody that knew anything about his writing could have identified. There's perjury there when Roy Bauer swore with such minute particularity as to his visits to that factory. There's perjury when this man Lee says that Duffy held his finger out and just let that blood spurt. But that ain't all. Here's the evidence of Mrs. Carson. Mrs. Carson says she has worked in that factory three years. And Mr. Arnold, in that suave manner of his, without any evidence to support it, not under oath, says, Mrs. Carson, I'll ask you a question I wouldn't ask a younger woman. Have you ever at any time around the ladies' dressing room seen any blood spots? And she said, I certainly have. That's a ridiculous proposition on its face. Have you seen that on several occasions or not? I've seen it three or four times. Not in three years. But now, did you ever have any conversation with Jim Conley? And she says, Yes, on Tuesday he came around to sweep around my table. That's exactly where Jim says he was Tuesday morning before this man was arrested. What floor do you work on? Fourth. What floor do your daughters work on? On the fourth. Did you see him up there Monday morning? No, sir. That's Frank. Tuesday morning? I saw him Tuesday morning. 
He was up there on the fourth floor after the murder on Tuesday. Sometime between 9 and 11 o'clock. I said, between 9 and 11, somewhere along there. Sometime between 9 and 11.30. Now, Jim Conley and Leo M. Frank were both on your floor between the same hours? I saw Mr. Frank and I saw Jim Conley. You know it because you had a conversation with Mr. Frank and you had a conversation with Jim Conley? Yes, I saw them both. And Conley says... And surely Conley couldn't have been put up to it by these men, even if they had wanted to suborn perjury. That when Frank came up there Tuesday morning before he was arrested, it was then that he came to him and leaned over and said, Jim, be a good boy. And then Jim, remembering the money and remembering the wealthy people in Brooklyn and the promises that Frank made, says, Yes, I is. Tuesday morning, says Mrs. Carson, your witness. Jim Conley and Frank both were on that floor, and Jim was doing exactly what he said he was doing, sweeping. Now, let's see this. This old lady was very much interested. Now, did you go on the office floor to see that blood? Listen at this. What blood? The blood right there by the dressing room. What dressing room? What blood are you talking about? She had seen it three or four times all over the factory? On the second floor? No, sir. She says. I never did see that spot. Never saw it at all? No, I didn't care to look at nothing like that. You don't care to look at nothing like that? No, sir, I don't. Now, that's Mrs. Carson, the mother of Miss Rebecca. That's what she told you under oath when she was on the stand. Now, let's see about perjury. Now, mark you, I'm not getting up here and saying this generally without putting my finger on the specific instances, and I'm not nearly exhausting the record. You can follow it up but I am just picking out a few instances. Here's what Mrs. Small says about Jim Conley reading the newspapers. Well, if Jim had committed that crime and he hadn't felt that he had the power and influence of Leo Frank back of him to protect him, he never would have gone back there to that factory or sat around and read newspapers, and you know it, if you know anything about the character of the Negro. Why was he so anxious to get the newspapers? It was because Jim knew some of the facts that he wanted to see, Negro-like. That's what made him so anxious about it. Here Mr. Arnold comes. You are a lady that works on the fourth floor, and I'm going to ask you a question that we are going to ask every lady that works on that fourth floor. And we caught them out on that proposition, too, didn't we? And you don't know right now how many women that worked on that floor were put up and how many weren't. You've got the books and the records, and you could have called the names, and you didn't dare do it. And after you had gone ahead and four-flushed before this jury as to what you were going to do, 
we picked out Miss Kitchens and brought her here, and she corroborated your own witness, Miss Jackson, as to the misconduct of this superintendent, Frank. Now, let's see what Mrs. Small says. Mrs. Small is a lady that got the raise, you remember, and couldn't tell what date it was, thought it had been about four months ago. She got a five-cent raise. About four months ago would make it since this murder, and when I got to quizzing her about it, she didn't know when she got the raise, and she's not the only one that got the raise, and it wasn't only in the factory that they raised them, either. Even Manola McKnight got some raise, and after she saw the import of it, you don't remember the exact date. No, sir, I don't. When she had already placed the date subsequent to this murder. And this woman, Mrs. Small, also corroborates Jim Conley about being up there Tuesday. Did you see Mr. Frank up there any of those days? I saw Mr. Frank up there Tuesday after that time. What time Tuesday? I couldn't tell you. I guess it was between 8 and 9 o'clock. The other one saw him somewhere between 9 and 11 or 11.30. This lady, their witness, says that he was up there between 8 and 9. Why was Frank so anxious to go up there on that floor? Why? It was because he wanted to see this man, Jim Conley, that he thought was going to protect him. Mr. Rosser characterized my suggestion that this man Frank called upon and expected Jim Conley to conceal the crime as a dirty suggestion, and I accept it as absolutely true, and I go a step further and say it was not only dirty, it was infamous. And he would today sit here in this courthouse and see a jury of honest men put a rope around Jim Conley's neck, the man that was brought into it by him, and he didn't mean to bring Jim Conley in unless he had to. And he had to. Jim says the first question he asked him when he saw him down there after this dastardly crime had been committed was, Have you seen anybody go up? Yes, says Jim. I have seen two girls go up, but I haven't seen but one come down. And then it was that this man saw the absolute necessity of taking Jim into his confidence, because he knew that Jim was on the lookout for him. And Starnes and Campbell and Black combined, together. And even if you make a composite intellect and add the brilliance of Messrs. Rosser and Arnold to that of these detectives, could never have fitted that piece of mosaic into the situation. It isn't to be done. Jim, have you seen anybody go up? Yes, said Jim. I see two girls go up, but only one came down. And you told Jim to protect you, and Jim tried to do it, and the suggestion was dirty. And worse than that, it is infamous. To be willing to see Jim Conley hung for a crime that Leo Frank committed. But I'm coming to that after a while. I haven't got to the state's case yet. I'm just cutting away some of the underbrush that you have tried to plant in this forest of gigantic oaks to smother up their growth. But you can't do it. The facts are too firmly and too deeply rooted. Oh yes, says Mrs. Small. 
I saw Frank up there on that fourth floor between 8 and 9 o'clock Tuesday morning. And the other lady saw him up there between 9 and 11. She wouldn't be sure the day he was arrested. I say arrested, according to Frank's own statement himself. They got him and just detained him. And even then, red-handed murderer as he was, his standing and influence, and the standing and influence of his attorney, somehow or other, and that's the only thing to the discredit of the police department throughout the whole thing, say what you may. They were intimidated and afraid because of the influence that was back of him, to consign him to a cell like they did Lee and Conley. And it took them a little time to arrive at the point where they had the nerve and courage to face the situation and put him where he ought to be. Now, I'll tell you another thing, too. If old John Black... And Mr. Rosser didn't get such a great triumph out of him as he would have us believe, either. Black's methods are somewhat like Rosser's methods. And if Black had Rosser where Rosser had Black, or if Black had Rosser down at police station, Black would get Rosser. And if Black had been given an opportunity to go after this man, Leo M. Frank, like he went after that poor defenseless Negro, Newt Lee, towards whom you would have directed suspicion, this trial might have been obviated, and a confession might have been obtained. You didn't get your lawyer to sustain you and support you a moment too soon. You called for Darley, and you called for Haas, and you called for Rosser, and you called for Arnold, and it took the combined efforts of all of them to keep up your nerve. And I don't want to misquote, and I won't misquote, but I want to drive it home with all the power that I possibly can or that I possess. The only thing in this case that can be said to the discredit of the police department of the city of Atlanta is that you treated this man who snuffed out that little girl's life on the second floor of that pencil factory with too much consideration. And you let able counsel and the glamour that surrounds wealth and influence deter you. I honor, but I honor the way they went after Manola McKnight I don't know whether they want me to apologize for them or not. But if you think that finding the red-handed murderer of a little girl like this is a lady's tea party, and that the detectives should have the manners of a dancing master and apologize and palaver, you don't know anything about the business. You have seen these dogs that hunt the possum bark up a tree or in a stump, and when they once get the scent of the possum, you can do what you like, but they'll bark up that tree and they'll bark in that stump until they run him out. And so with old John Starnes and Campbell. They knew, and you know, that Albert McKnight would never have told Craven this tale about what he saw and what his wife had told him, except for the fact that it be true. And if you had been Starnes, you would have been barking up that tree or barking in that stump until you ran out what you knew was in there. That's all there is to it. You have got the writ of habeas corpus that's guaranteed to you. Go and get it. And if Mr. Haas had come to me Tuesday morning and said, You direct the police. On Monday morning, when Frank was taken down into custody and said to me, You direct the police to turn this man Frank loose. He's innocent. I would have said, it's none of my business. I run my office, they run their office. 
And the next time the police department, in an effort to serve the people of this community, take a Negro that they know and you know and lock her up or whatnot, I'll not usurp the functions of the judge of these courts who can turn her loose on a habeas corpus and direct them to turn her loose or interfere in any way in their business. I don't run the police department of the city of Atlanta. I run the office of solicitor general for the term that the people have elected me. And I'm taken to task because I went in at the beginning of this thing and didn't stand back. I honor Mr. Hill. I am as proud of having succeeded him as I am that I was elected to the position by the people of this community, to the office of solicitor general. But I have never yet seen the man that I would take as my model or pattern. I follow the dictates of my own conscience. And if there is one act since I have been Solicitor General of which I am proud, it is the fact that I joined hand and glove with the detectives in the effort to seek the murderer of Mary Fagan. And when your influence poured letters into the grand jury in an effort to hang an innocent man, Negro though he be, that I stood firmly up against it. If that be treason, make the best of it. And if you don't want me to do it, then get somebody else to fill the job, and the quicker you do it, the better it will suit me. I will not pattern myself after anybody or anybody's method, not even Mr. Hill, and bless his old soul. He was grand and great, and I have wished a hundred times that he was here today to make the speech that I'm now making. There wouldn't be hair or hide left on you. He was as noble as any Roman that ever lived, as courageous as Julius Caesar, and as eloquent as Demosthenes. Such talk as that don't scare me, don't terrify me, don't disturb the serenity of my conscience, which approves of everything that I have done in the prosecution of this man. Now, let's come back here and discuss this thing of perjury. Let's talk about that a little. Let's not get up here and say that everybody is a liar without citing any instances, and that they are crack-brain fanatics, Let's knuckle down and get specific instances. So this Mrs. Small says she saw Jim Conley. Did you see Mr. Frank up there on any of those days? I saw Mr. Frank after that crime on Tuesday. What time Tuesday? I couldn't tell you. I guess between 8 and 9 o'clock. He and Miss Carson were coming up from the back end of the factory. Miss Rebecca, I presume. He and Mrs. Carson were coming up from the back end of the factory, and I stepped up in front of him and I said, Here, Mr. Frank, wait a moment. Okay this ticket. He says, Are you going to put me to work as soon as I get here? And I says, Yes, it's good for your health. He okayed the ticket, and I went on with my work. So Frank was up there Tuesday morning. Now, speaking about Mrs. Carson, how far towards the elevator did Mrs. Carson go with Frank? Mrs. Carson wasn't up there. It was Miss Carson, Miss Rebecca. The old lady says she was. I said, oh, the old lady wasn't up there at all. No, sir, she wasn't there Tuesday at all. You saw Miss Rebecca Carson walking up towards the elevator. Yes, sir. What was Conley doing? Standing there by the elevator? And yet, 
Jim has lied about Frank. Frank was up there twice. Jim was sweeping. Jim was there by the elevator. At the time you saw Frank, the Negro was standing there at the elevator? Yes, sir. He wasn't sweeping. He was standing there with his hand on the truck looking around. Did he see you and Frank? I guess he must have seen us. Where was Conley when he went down the steps? Standing in front of the elevator. How close did Frank pass Conley? As close as from here to that table, about four feet. Conley was still standing there with his hand on that thing, is that true? Yes, sir. That's exactly like Conley says. And here's another thing. This woman, Mrs. Small, testifies about that elevator. It shakes the whole building, I said. Anybody in the world could tell it if the machinery wasn't running. She says, No, anybody in the world could tell it if the machinery wasn't running, but you can't notice it unless you are close to the elevator. I asked, If there was hammering and knocking, would you still hear the elevator? She said, You could if you get close to it. Well, of course you could. Nobody disputes that. If the elevator was up here, and you were back in the rear, and there was hammering and knocking going on, you couldn't. No, sir. And that disposes of that point. That's the truth on that. Now, Mrs. Carson had already sworn here positively that she didn't go down to see that blood, hasn't she? There were too many of these people over there at the factory who had seen that blood. That blood that at first wasn't blood, it was paint, and then wasn't paint, but was cat's blood, or blood from somebody that was injured, and then wasn't fresh blood, but was stale blood. Too many of them had seen it. On Wednesday, I had no business back there. I was there one day, but can't remember. What did you go back there for? A crowd of us went at noon to see if we could see any blood spots. Were you successful? No, sir. Who went with you? And lo and behold, Mrs. Carson, the mother of Rebecca, had already stated that she didn't go about it. The very first person that this Mrs. Small refers to. Well, Mrs. Carson. Mrs. Carson went with you, I said. Yes, sir, she saw the places where the blood was said to be. You know she was there. You are pretty sure she was there. Mrs. Small said, Yes, sir. It looked like what? Looked like powder. How much of it down there? A small amount, just a little, looked like some of the girls had been powdering their face and spilled powder. You know better than that. I came back to the subject. What makes you say Mrs. Carson went down there with you? Answer. Because Curiosity sent us down there. Did Curiosity send her down there too? We went back afterwards. 
Now, gentlemen, somebody swore, and I put it up to you, too. Somebody committed perjury. You were going back yourself and went to get her? Yes, sir. She didn't make any objection to going down, did she? No, sir. Don't you know she didn't go? I know, she says, that she did. All right. If this case is founded on perjury, it's the kettle calling the pot black, and I haven't dealt in glittering generalities. I have set forth specific cases. But that isn't intended to be exhaustive. That's a mere summary of a few of these instances. They are too numerous to mention. The truth is that there is no phase of this case where evidence was needed to bolster it up that somebody hasn't come in, you say, willingly and without pay, because you say there is no slush fund back of this case. Now, let's pass on here a little bit. They tried mighty hard to break down this man, Albert McKnight, with Manola. And I believe I'll leave that for a little later and come now to the statement of Frank's. Gentlemen, I wish I could travel faster over this. I'm doing the very best I can. I have a difficult task, and I wish I didn't have to do it at all. Now, gentlemen, I want to discuss briefly right here these letters. And if these letters weren't the order of an all-ruling providence, I should agree with my friends that they are the silliest pieces of stuff ever practiced. But these letters have intrinsic marks of a knowledge of this transaction. These pads. That pad. Things usually found in his office. This man, Frank, by the language of these notes, in attempting to fasten the crime upon another, has indelibly fixed it upon himself. I repeat it. These notes, which were intended to fix the crime upon another, have indelibly fixed it upon this defendant, Leo M. Frank. The pad, the paper, the fact that he wanted a note. You tell me that ever a Negro lived on the face of the earth who, after having killed and robbed or ravished and murdered a girl down in that dark basement, or down there in that area, would have taken up the time to have written these notes and written them on a scratch pad, which is a thing that usually stays in the office, or written them on paper like this, found right outside of the office of Frank, as shown on that diagram, which is introduced in evidence and which you will have out with you? You tell me that that man, Jim Conley, sober, as Tillander and Graham tell you, when they went there, would have ravished this girl with a knowledge of the fact that Frank was in that house? I tell you no. Do you tell me that this man, Jim Conley, drunk as a fiddler's bitch, if you want it that way, would or could have taken time to have written these notes to put beside the body of that dead girl? I tell you no. And you don't need me to tell you, you know it. The fact, gentlemen of the jury, that these notes were written. Ah, 
But you say that it's foolish. You say it's foolish. It's ridiculous. It was a silly piece of business. It was a great folly. But murder will out, and providence directs things in a mysterious way. And not only that, as Judge Bleckley says, crime, whenever committed, is a mistake in itself. And what kind of logic is it that will say that a man committed a crime, which is a great big mistake, and then in an effort to cover it up, won't make a smaller mistake? There's no logic in that position. The man who commits a crime makes a mistake. And the man who seeks to cover it up nearly always makes also a little mistake. And this man here, by these notes, purporting to have been written by little Mary Fagan, by the verbiage and the language and the context, in trying to fasten it on another, as sure as you are sitting in this jury box, has indelibly fastened it on himself. These gentlemen saw the significance of the difference between Scott's evidence when he was before the coroner, and he wasn't quizzed there particularly about it. I told her no, and I told her I didn't know. To tell that little girl no would have given her no excuse, according to their way of thinking, to go back to see whether that metal had come or not, but to tell her I didn't know would lure her back into the snare where she met her death. And your own detective, Scott, says, after he gave the thing mature deliberation, that this man on the Monday evening, and he was so anxious about getting a detective that he had that man shift telephone three times, three times, three times, three times, Remember that. So anxious was he. Scott says, after thinking over the matter, that Leo M. Frank told that girl that he didn't know whether the medal had come or not, and she went back there to see about the medal, and he followed her back there. I'll tell you another thing, that old Starnes and Campbell and Rosser, and even Newport Lanford, if he had been called in, and even if I had been called in to save my life, could not have known that the very word that Leo M. Frank used. According to Jim Conley, when Conley says Frank told him, I'm going to chat with a girl, would have been used exactly four times, as I'll show you when I come to read this statement by Leo M. Frank, for he chatted and he chatted and he chatted and he chatted, according to his own statement. This letter that I hold in my hand says that this Negro did it. Old Jim Conley in his statement here, which I hold in my hand, every time he opened his mouth says, I done it. Old Jim Conley, if he had written these notes, never would have said, this Negro did it by himself. But Frank wanted it understood that the man that did do it, did it by himself. Jim Conley says that Frank says he wanted to chat, and four times in this statement, before they suspended to go out and let you refresh yourself, this man Frank had said that somebody came in the office to chat. And Mr. Arnold, in making his argument to the jury, realized 
because he is as keen and as smart as they ever get to be, the force of that word, and endeavor to parry the blow which I now seek to give this defendant. And you tell me that old Jim Conley, after he had robbed and murdered, or after he had ravished and murdered this girl, when he would have had no occasion in the world to have cared whether her dead body was found right there at that chute, was such a fool as to take the time to take her body way back there in the basement and hide it behind the corner of that room. I tell you that it never occurred. That body was taken down there and put in the place where it was. Why? Because she was murdered on the second floor where the blood spots are found and because Leo M. Frank, the superintendent of the plant, saw and felt the necessity that that girl's body should not be found on the second floor of the pencil factory. But to use the language which he put in the letter or telegram, which he sent to Adolph Montag in New York, in the cellar. My, my. That Negro fireman down here did this. Now, let's see how many times Jim says, done it. I lock the door like he done told me. I remembers that because the man, what was with the baby, looked at me like he thought I done it. That's when they ran into the man that Jim says looked at him like he thought, I done it. It's the difference between ignorance and education. And these notes that you had that man prepare in your office on this paper that stayed on that floor and on that pad that came from your office, bear the marks of your diction, and Starnes and Campbell, with all their ingenuity, couldn't have anticipated that old Jim would get up here and state that, this man looked at me when he ran into that baby, like I done it, and couldn't have made him say, I locked the door like he done told me, and couldn't have said, I went on and walked up to Mr. Frank and told him that girl was done dead. He done just like this and said, shh. I could go on with other instances. And there's your word chat. Chat, chat, chat. Four times. I'm going to read it to you. It's here in black and white, and you can't get around it. This girl went down there in that scuttle hole? Listen at this. You didn't want to say that she went back there to see about the metal, but you knew that the lady's water closet was back there. And you make this poor girl say, I went to make water. I went to make water. He pushed me down that hole, a long, tall, black Negro. Long, slim, tall Negro. I write while he play with me. And this note says that long, tall, black Negro did it by himself. Make water? Where did she go to make water? Right back there in the same direction that she would have gone to see about the metal. You tell me, except providentially, that that would have crept in here? You tell me that old Jim Conley, 
Negro. After he had struck that girl with that big stick, which is a plant, as sure as you are living here, and as sure as Newt Lee's shirt was a plant, you tell me that Negro felt any inducement or necessity for leaving that girl's form anywhere except where he hit her and knocked her down. You tell me that he had the ingenuity. And mark you, Starnes and these other men weren't there then to dictate and map out. You tell me that he would write a note that she went back to make water when there's no place and her usual place was up there on the second floor? I tell you, gentlemen of the jury, that a smarter man than Starnes, or a smarter man than Campbell, a smarter man than Black, a smarter man than Rosser, in the person of Leo M. Frank, felt impelled to put there these letters, which he thought would exculpate him, but which incriminate and damn him in the minds of every man seeking to get at the truth. Yet, you tell me there's nothing in circumstantial evidence. When here's a pad, and there's the pad, and there's the notes, which you must admit, or which you don't deny, old Jim Conley wrote, because you say in your statement you had got numerous notes from him. And yet, the very day, at the police station, according to your own statement, when you wrote that, you saw the original of these, and you didn't open your mouth, you didn't say a word, you didn't direct the finger of suspicion against this man, Jim Conley, who had been infamously directed to keep quiet to protect you. Things don't happen that way, gentlemen, and you know it. There isn't an honest man on that jury, unbiased, unprejudiced, seeking to get at the truth, but what knows that these letters? Silly? Yes, silly. Except you see the hand of providence in it all. That don't know that the language and the context and the material out of which they are written were written for the protection of Leo M. Frank, the superintendent of this factory, who wired Montag to tell his uncle... If my uncle inquires about me, state that I am all right. The police have the thing well in hand and will eventually solve the problem. And the girl was found dead, not in the factory, but in the cellar. The man who wrote the note. Nothing startling has happened in so short a time. Wrote it with a knowledge and conscience of the fact that this poor girl's life had been snuffed out even at the time he penned the words. You'll have this out with you. You look at them. If you can get anything else out of them, you do it. And as honest men, I don't want you to convict this man unless you are satisfied of his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. But don't let that doubt be the doubt of a crank. Don't let it be the doubt of a man who has conjured it up simply to acquit a friend or a man that has been the friend of a friend. Let it be the doubt of an honest, conscientious, upright juror, the noblest work of Almighty God. Now this statement. I tell you, gentlemen of the jury, that when this statement 
you heard Frank make is scanned, it is susceptible of but one construction. And that is that it is the statement of a guilty man made to fit in these general circumstances as they would have you believe. These gentlemen here harped a great deal, gentlemen of the jury. Are you going to convict him on this? Are you going to convict him on that? It isn't the law that circumstantial evidence is inferior to direct and positive evidence, and it is correct to instruct the jury that there is nothing in the nature of circumstantial evidence that renders it less reliable than other classes of evidence. The illustration that they would seek, gentlemen of the jury, not by direct language did they do it in their argument to you, because we had already read them this authority, but they would bring up this isolated fact and that isolated fact, and they would say, are you going to convict him on that? I don't ask your conviction on that. Two illustrations, first, each of the incidental facts surrounding the main fact and issue, is a link in a chain, and that the chain is not stronger than its weakest link. This authority says is generally rejected as an incorrect metaphor and liable to misconstruction. The second illustration, and the one that is approved is, each of the incidental facts surrounding the main facts and issue are compared to the strands in a rope, where none of them may be sufficient in itself, but all taken together may be strong enough to establish the guilt of the accused beyond a reasonable doubt. And so they took isolated instance after isolated instance, and then said, are you going to convict him on that? I say no. But I do say that these instances each constitute a chain or a cord, a strand and a cable, and that when you get them all, all together, you have a cable that ought to hang anybody. That's the proposition. Not on this isolated instance, or that one, but upon all, taken together and bound together, which make a cable as strong as it is possible for the ingenuity of man to weave around anybody. Now, listen at this statement, and let's analyze that as we go on a little. I don't know whether this man's statement to the jury will rank along with the cross-examination of that celebrated pervert, Oscar Wilde, or not, but it was a brilliant statement when, unanalyzed, and if you just simply shut your eyes and mind to reason and take this statement, then, of course, you are not going to convict. But listen to what our courts say about these statements. I have already read it to you, but I want to read it again. Evidence given by a witness has inherent strength which even a jury cannot, under all circumstances, disregard. A statement has none. No cross-examination, no oath, merely a statement, adroitly prepared to meet the exigencies of the case. You've been listening to our continuing audiobook series featuring the best writing from the American Mercury on the Leo Frank case. Be with us next time when we will continue with the next installment of the American Mercury on Leo Frank.